BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get access. Access to not only our great daily newsletter, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. As some of our listeners know, we've been running the fantastic Strangers in China podcast. It's in its third season. Uh, it is richly reported. It's a first-person account of the lockdown as experienced by an American, our host, Clay Baldo, uh, living in Shanghai. There is a ton in there necessarily about the Hui or the Neighborhood Committee, and it's a really good illustration of both the expanded powers and responsibilities of neighborhood committees during the lockdown and the unreasonable load that they seem to have been suddenly saddled with, all out of proportion to their capacity, their training, their resources. They are not the villain of the story, although they're often maddening and, and annoying, uh, but they are not the villain of Clay's story. Clay is really empathetic, and the picture that emerges is is really a complex one. So today on Seneca, we are going to talk about some of what Clay witnessed in Shanghai at the ground level in spring of 2022, but this time from a more academic perspective, looking at how during the pandemic, we witnessed a massive expansion of the administrative state in China, uh, an expansion downward toward the grassroots through the sub-district and community levels of administration. So joining me to talk about this is Taisu Zhang, who is professor of law at Yale Law School. He's the author of a couple of books of Ideological Foundations of Qing Taxation and The Laws and Economics of Confucianism, Kinship and Property in Pre-Industrial China and England. We'll be talking about a paper that Taisu co-authored with Yutian An, a PhD candidate at Princeton, called Pandemic State Building, Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era, as well as a really thought-provoking essay that he recently published in Foreign Affairs about China's efforts to, to really shift the foundations of political legitimacy more toward 
legality as the tailwind of high GDP growth no longer really fills the sails of political legitimacy in the way that it has for several decades now. Um, as we will see, these two things, the paper and the foreign affairs essay, are related. They really dovetail nicely. Anyway, a long overdue welcome to you, Taisu. Uh, so glad that I could finally get you on Seneca. Well, glad to be here. Been looking forward to this for a long time. Oh, good, 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 good. Well, let's get started. Uh, let's talk about your essay first in Foreign Affairs, which was published on February 27th, and it was titled Seize Law and Order Strategy, the CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy. So in it, you argue that the party has traditionally relied on what we've come to call performance legitimacy, its, its ability to deliver social stability and especially growth, economic, you know, well-being. Yeah. So before we get into what it's now banking on to bolster legitimacy, I want to talk about this intriguing and, you know, on reading it, I think to me at least a totally persuasive idea that nationalism, which people often talk about as like a separate pillar of political legitimacy, nationalism actually also rests on economic performance. So maybe before we jump in, maybe you can unpack that idea a little bit. In what way does nationalism rest ultimately on economic performance? Great. Um, so there are different kinds of nationalisms in the world. The kind that you see most often, perhaps elsewhere in the world, either in Japan, South Korea, India, even, frankly, even the United States, is rooted in a sense of what you might describe as like organically national values. Mm -hmm. Basically, the, the, these are nationalisms that are built upon some kind of cultural identity or some kind of uh, normative, some set of normative values. Any proclamation that, you know, like we are this kind of people, we follow this kind of value, Americans will say we love freedom and democracy, the Japanese will proclaim a certain kind of you know, Shinto religion oriented religious worldview, and so on and so forth. And like Hindu nationalism has its own variety of these things tied with imagined past. Certainly, certainly the, these are not perhaps concrete actual historical past, but they're imagined pasts that have a certain kind of like deep normative content to it. Now, in contrast to that kind of nationalism, the current dominant kind of nationalism that I see in China these days is largely a materialistic one. If hmm. you, you press like your average nationalist Vapor commentator on the mainland, you know, like why is he like obviously these are all people who are often justifiably proud of their country for various kinds of accomplishments. If you press them, why are they proud to be Chinese or why do they think that being Chinese is so great? They're usually not necessarily going to give you kind of much of a normative answer. They're not going to say being Chinese means holding, like holding up certain kinds of values and we do this in a certain kind of way that makes us proud. More often, they're going to basically say being Chinese is is something worthy of pride because China has been so successful over the past couple of decades in performing this economic miracle and lifting its people out of poverty and gaining status and might and power and influence across the globe. Um, so to a large extent, the sense of nationalistic pride you see in China these days is itself fundamentally a performance of this kind of nationalism. And you know, whereas to, to most Chinese, this is simply just intuitively how nationalism is supposed to work. If you contrast that with other kinds of nationalisms that are prevalent across Eurasia, you'd probably be kind of blind to not notice that this is actually rather unique to the Chinese context. 
most other nationalisms are less materialistic. Um, they ground their sense of national identity values. Um, whereas the Chinese kind of nationalism has perhaps gestured towards values here and there in the past, but fundamentally the real source of coherence, of consolidation, of of pride um, is China's material performance. You know, it's surprising only to me that, that I haven't heard this idea articulated elsewhere before. Uh, that's that's very, I find that to be very, very persuasive. So uh, I think, you know, if I had just read that part of your essay already, I would have been, you know, retweeting it. <laughs> it was great. It was, uh, let's just go on though, because I think the thrust of your argument in the piece is that faced with the end of really fast growth and, you know, having yeah. seen quite a bit of de dissatisfaction in the COVID lockdowns and, and to some extent in the sudden about face that yeah. uh, ended zero COVID, you know, and, and saw the virus just basically get everybody. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the yeah. party is now placing renewed emphasis on law, uh, but not on law necessarily as a tool of coercion or repression, you know, nor I think I should, it's important to add, nor on the idea of rule of law as we understand it in the West, but yes. on law as a basis of legitimacy itself, as you put it, playing on the human tendency to accept law as reason. So this is a really big idea. Let's pick this apart a bit and start by differentiating what you're talking about uh, when you say uh, this is different from the idea of the rule of law. Right. Um, so actually, before we get into that, let me just make one qualification. Like, I would say, you know, like the party still draws a huge amount of support from performance-based legitimacy. Like, the economy is slowing. It's not, as far as I can tell, collapsing. Sure. Um, this particular year, I expect with the end of the lockdowns, growth is going to be rel relatively robust, and there might be a kind of a reprieve. That said, yes, like, the, the long-term structural circumstances of the Chinese economy are concerning, like, especially the demographics and things like government debt. So, yeah, like, over the next five to ten years, I think... The state's ability to draw social support simply based on economic performance alone is going to weaken, if not quite weaken, too rapidly over time. Sure. Which means that yeah, they need something that's not tied to that kind of economic performance to bolster them, their social support. And so yeah, this is where law comes in. Now you ask what is uh, the difference between rule of law and the kind of legality that I talk about. Well, so rule of law is not so much a legal concept as it is a political concept, right? A normative concept, right? Normative political concept, right? It's it's mainly about the idea that every regular actor in the state, every regular policymaker, every regular lawmaker uh, should be subject to some kind of pretty significant legal constraint on that person's power. Like no one should really be above the law, even if the law itself does not try to reach certain kinds of heights. So from that perspective, you know, China is obviously not a rule of law country by that definition, because you know, the Chinese law itself does not purport really to control the actions and the, the decisions or to limit them um, of the of the, the, the central party leadership. Right. There's there's right. a certain segment of the Chinese party state that by the actual design of the law is above it. Above it. And it's not illegal for them to be above it because the law simply says nothing about what they can they can or cannot do. The most any Chinese law ever says about this kind of stuff is the constitution that says the Chinese Communist Party leads China. So, you know, like there there are no legal checks on the actual power of the central party leadership, and again, that's by design. 
which means you know China is not really going to be a rule of law country as long as that holds. Now that said, um, that doesn't mean that it can't be a law-oriented country in the sense that at least insofar as the written laws would seem based on their own textual meaning to apply to certain kinds of state activities or private activities, um, those laws are enforced rigorously and professionally. Right. And that's the main thing here. Well, like it's to, to 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 perhaps really crudely capture this is it's that for everyone except the central party leadership and this overall party state apparatus and increasingly even party organs, um, those who wield power are being directed by the central party leadership to wield them according to legal doctrines and legal commandments. And they're increasingly being asked to do so in a more professionalized uh, top-down and legalistic fashion than they were used to. And the, my argument is that this in, a, in and of itself creates a certain kind of legitimacy as perceived by the public. Because as you were studying that quote, this is like a common quote that you find in like Weber and all kinds of uh, early, early 20th century sociologists, political theorists, populations have a tendency to take laws reason. Because in the end, you know, like most people on the ground don't necessarily reason from first principles when they think about the legitimacy of a governmental action. They look for pro- they look for various kinds of proxies. Right. And one of the most powerful proxies is law, because law has a ritualistic, formalistic element that gives it a year of authority. And when you can observe on a relatively reliable basis on your in your everyday life that state actors and other private actors are largely acting in accordance according to the law, that force of habit, that force of authoritative habits, tends to make you think that what they're doing is legitimate. They're following rules, they're not behaving arbitrarily, they're obeying the general perceived rules of society as we've all kind of agreed upon them, issued by some kind of authoritative body. And for you guys, this this doesn't come out of nowhere either. You explore this idea, you test this proposition in this paper that you co-wrote with Yiching Fu and Yiching Xu. Yes. At Stanford. Uh, yep. it's called, this is a paper called Does Legality Produce Legitimacy, uh, which is based on survey research uh, with urban Chinese designed to, you know, to test this idea that even stripped of actual rule of law, as we've said, yes. uh, the idea of legality actually does reinforce political legitimacy. So can you briefly summarize what those findings were? This right. is in the other paper that I wanted to yeah. talk about. I, I yeah. just want to use this in support of because, you know, your, your essay in foreign affairs is actually quite short. And you don't go into the empirical, you know, study yeah, that yeah. underpins this. But so I wanted to give you a chance to do that here. Yeah, great. Um, so thanks for that opportunity. That, that 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 that's quite important. So there's a common perception in Western political theory that law itself is usually not enough to produce social perceptions of legitimacy. The idea is that you know, like people value law not for law itself but rather for the substantive moral content that the law embodies. This is an especially popular idea in the post-Cold War world, where liberalism is dominant, and you think of law not as an isolated, skinny thing, but rather as a full set of ideological ideological commitments towards liberalism, towards democracy, towards freedom, and so on and so forth. So for most political theorists, I think, in the Western world, they think that you know, for the populations they observe, which are mainly Western ones, if law is being applied to normatively bad ends, the people aren't going to respect law itself. People right. are going to desire the, the ends to be fixed. 
And so hence, like, you know, like my colleagues in the you know, law school building or a lot of other political theorists would say, you know, if law is being ser- being used to serve a liberal ends, no matter how legalistic it is, if it's being used to not pursue a certain vision of justice, uh, then it doesn't really matter what, what how legalistic or how formalistic or how professionalized your, your legal apparatus is. People aren't going to think that a government action is legitimate just because it's legal. And what I want to basically argue is that in some other contexts where the law has over the past century or two gained a more technocratic and perhaps normatively neutral meaning, that law, just pure law itself, pure legality, uh, can be a source of political legitimacy. And so we test this through a variety of survey experiments. If you want, we can go more deeply into how this I do, I do. I want to hear the, the research design because it's fascinating. I also right. want to ask whether you have any comparative data whether you, you, you looked at other societies where there yeah, have been comparable experiments yeah, set up. Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah we, we have not. That will be the next stage of what we're going to do in the future. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But a lot of, there has been a lot of research on this. You know, like Tom Tyler, my colleague here, has a series of really authoritative articles on how uh, you know, police law enforcement action is perceived in the U.S. And what, what he finds, I think, which is um, perhaps the, the, the conventional wisdom in the West, is that if police action doesn't meet like a basic substantive amount of what he calls procedural justice, in that it doesn't seem fair enough, it doesn't seem responsive enough, it doesn't seem respectful enough. It doesn't really matter whether the police enforcement action is technically full and will be letter, be letter of the law. It's not going to be perceived as legitimate by the population. Right. Uh, whereas what we find is that even if you strip law of virtually all of its possible liberal connotations, you use law to control and 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 constrain rather than to empower. You use law to enforce state commandments rather than to empower private liberties. Um, even if you use law in a way that doesn't necessarily prove economically beneficial in the end, as long as your governmental actions are based on law as opposed to being based on some non-legal government fiat, the Chinese urban population that we surveyed seems to respond pretty positively towards just the sheer introduction of law itself. You don't need liberal commitments. You don't need rights. You don't need freedoms. You don't need the rule of law in the sense of checking or balancing governmental power. You don't need even like the use of law to further economic goals. You can strip away all those things in the survey experience, and you're just left with something that we call, that we call like raw or pure legality. Mm-hmm. And they're still going to respond positively towards that. Not perhaps not quite as positively as they might respond to some of the substantive stuff, but still positively enough that it makes a real difference. Right. Interesting. How how robust are those findings? I mean, how how the findings how... are the findings are pretty strong. So the findings yeah. are consistent across a, a variety of factual patterns that we cooked up. Cooked up. Like you know, we would give survey survey respondents a number of factual patterns. Uh, one pattern is you know online censorship. Uh, or alternatively, um, you know, fireworks controls during during spring festival, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. content censorship in media like movies and TV series, or just like government regulations of of street side vendors. A lot of different kinds of contexts that have, that trigger different kinds of social reactions. Regardless of the context, you find pretty consistently across all of these these factual patterns that raw legality produces a sizable amount of perceived legitimacy by the respondents. Kind of depressing, but uh, it's a, also it's a, not, not it's so a, surprising. It's a little bit depressing, but I'm not necessarily sure how depressing it actually is. Because frankly, 
in a lot of ways, that this is the kind of thing that makes the Chinese population more governable. Sure, sure, sure. But yeah, I guess I guess my question is: Does this shift to an emphasis on legality? Does it at least offer a toehold for people who are keen on promoting actual rule of law? You know, as we understand it, I mean, could we see more yeah. accountability to law from political elites uh, who are? Are are not as you know subject to it right now. I mean, because right. of this, this is like a first right. step. Right, right. I mean, people have made that argument quite a lot over the past years. Like one punk, pop, very popular idea that was you know, hugely popular in the nineties was that you know, incremental movements towards legality, even if initially applied for non-liberal means, would eventually snowball towards a more liberal view of like the rule of law. The idea being. That once people get more and more accustomed to law per se as being the basis of political action, that any political action that, that does not seem to have a legal basis is going to be questioned. Right? So there's going to be a demand, like, you know, like getting accustomed to law as a major source of legitimacy will produce more demand. Right. So socially for more law. And so law keeps expanding, that snowballs, there's a certain kind of path dependency. And in perhaps 20, 30 years, the end result is the government finds itself needing to bind itself by law everywhere for the public to actually accept its, its actions. I sense that you don't buy that. I I can see a world in which that's true. Okay. I can also see possible scenarios in which that does not materialize. It, it all depends on how much the government kind of lets the language of the law run wild. Right. Right. So if the government consistently like maintains a very careful propaganda hold on how how expansive law is. Right? So, for example, in a society in which legality eventually becomes the only source of perceived legitimacy, then yeah, that kind of snowballing is almost always going to happen because without the expansion of law, nothing is going to be justifiable to the public. But I think the Chinese government at this point is still pretty careful to not use law as its, as its only source of legitimacy. It's still searching for all kinds of other sources. And it's, it's not going to give up on economic performance anytime soon. So as long as you have these other sources of legitimacy that balance law out, you can kind of constrain the, the, the natural creep of legality. And mm. when, you, when you do that, it's not necessarily true that there's going to be this strong snowballing effect. That's, that's uh, fascinating. Uh, one question is, I mean, right now we're in the time of the two meetings as we record. Yes. I, I'm sure you're watching it just like you know me and the rest of us, but uh, what are you seeing coming out of the NPC or maybe even out of the 20th Party Congress back in November or the second plenum last month um, that seems to bear out what you're getting at in this essay? Are you seeing anything in this administrative restructuring? Still, let me put this. Like, so the administrative restructuring that's currently happening is in the two in the two meetings in the two conferences right now is it lends itself to two different kinds of interpretations right like if you're a real diehard liberal china critic you could probably say this is the elevate the further subsuming of the states within the party right you're imposing the party as a kind of like a superstructure and so on and so forth right Alternatively, you could also say, which is the angle that I prefer, which is, you know, like they're, they're actually making the party a little bit more rules oriented. Yeah, the party is gaining control over what used to be known as the state organs of government. But at the same time, when, while it's doing that, uh, the leadership seems intent on making the party more state like mm-hmm. and how it mm-hmm. substantially functions, right? So there's a merging of the two. The state side of things is becoming more subsumed within the party structure. But the started, but by doing that, 
the Permian structure is also kind of almost being contaminated right. um, by the, the direction of influence is not yeah. it's not a unidirectional movement. Yeah, the, the two right. sides the, the two sides really bleed into each other. Hmm. And I, I like my sense is the end product of all this is that the Permian is going to get more rules oriented, even as the state side of things is brought under perhaps like more careful political, political control. And so that does not necessarily contradict this overall message of the Gelt. Plus, you're know, on the rhetorical side, right? This is one thing that's been really stark. Like, right? ever since 2014, the party leadership from seeing himself all the way down has, as far as I can tell, never wavered from its rhetorical commitment to Yifa Zhiguo, which means governing the country according to law, right? This has been one of its most consistent, most visible slogans. It's, it's like it was there last fall. At the 20th Party Congress, it's here again in the Lianghui this spring. Like, it's occupying an increasingly prominent position. And, and when I was in Beijing last summer for family reasons, it seemed like every single time something went wrong uh, in the localities, whether it was the Hunan like, uh, health code scandal, the bank run thing, uh, the, bank, the, the, the bank bankruptcy that led to a health code scandal, where the Shandong incident, where like, local officials were apparently like, Propping up mafia that were behaving improperly, like every single time something went on went wrong on the ground, the reaction from the center would be to reiterate the importance of governing the country according to law and making sure that all local actors follow legal rules when they engaged with the public. So at this point, the the, the, the sheer amount of rhetorical commitment to this is so large that I think it's not even functionally feasible for the for the party leadership to come like change course away from legality anytime soon. And I think that's probably pretty good because it's getting close to the point where this is a fully credible commitment. So you think this accumulation of, of rhetorical commitments is the main evidence that you see for this shift? I mean, have they made... No, no, no. It's, 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 you said, it, you know, since 2014, this has been going on now, right? Yes. Uh, right. I mean, Yifa Zhiguo is, is... Yeah, it's a, it's been a talking point. I've, I hear it constantly. But... Is there is there maybe more explicit pronouncement that oh, yes. this is yeah okay let's let's yeah. see what that is um, and so, so so the the rhetoric has gotten to gone I think to a critical mass at this point the the actual measures on the ground I think are equal are almost equally powerful although the implementation is a bit more uneven which is why most the academic community this is still a matter of some controversy right so I would point to things like since 2014 there has been a complete revamping of the judiciary. And its overall political status within the government. Right? So, like when I was kind of interning at the at the, at the Supreme People's Court in two thousand and nine, you talked to judges, and everyone, you know, judges back then, even Supreme Court judges, didn't necessarily have a very high opinion of themselves right. or the position of the overall judiciary within the party state. Like one conversation that I distinctly remember was the senior judge was telling me, like everyone on the outside somehow rests their hopes of like Chinese rule of law on the judiciary, and that's ridiculous because that's like placing this gigantic normative hope on a really weak and feeble institution right, that doesn't, right, that, right. that's not really geared up to actually carry the verdict. They, they, but they have more spine now. I mean, you think that, that, that they've been really... Yes. Yeah. The point is, I, I think like the past eight years of reforms or nine years of reforms really has given them kind of like a different view on life. Um, since 2014, you know, like the government's made a concerted effort to raise their salaries, Give them a certain measure of like financial independence from parallel levels of governments. So previously, it was the case that um, local courts and middle courts were subject to the direct budgetary con controls of parallel levels of governments, 
And now all of the budgetary control is being concentrated at the, at the provincial and central levels. So you're taking like, any kind of fiscal control that you know, mid to lower level governments had over the course and giving the courts a certain kind of um, financial independence from these entities. Uh, at the same time, you're you're trying to beef up the professionalism of the court. You're trying to insist on higher educational credentials. You're trying to make sure that judges that are allowed to adjudicate are the ones with proper legal training. There's a huge emphasis on trying to legally ban uh, outside government executives from interfering with court decisions. Now, the, the controversy is that all of this beefing up of the judiciary and what I would consider to even be beefing up the judiciary's functional independence lends itself to a certain kind of glass half full, glass half empty kind of debate, mm, right? Mm, mm-hmm. On the one hand, yeah, there are actually real changes being implemented on the ground. On the other hand, you know, first of all, the starting point was pretty darn low, especially if you go all the way back to 1980. Um, so you can always, even in this day and age, point to various aspects in which the Chinese courts are not independent or they're subject to control from all kinds of governmental agencies externally. And so the reforms are certainly incomplete or they're not meant to be fully complete. But compared, I think, with what things were like 10 years ago, I think the progress has been quite salient. Nearly every single lawyer that I talk to in China thinks that the courts run better, are more professional, more streamlined, more predictable, more legalistic than they used to be. You know, like back in 2009, when I talked to a lawyer and I asked them, like, you know, if you were giving me advice on how to go into a civil case, the Beijing People's Court, like, what's the advice? He's like, well, of course, the first thing you got to do is bribe the judge. Exactly. I knew you were going to say that. (laughs) Right. Um, Nowadays, if you talk to them, instead they'll say, actually, that's not only no longer necessary, it may not even be good because the judges will balk at that. Right. And instead, it's much better to just get a good lawyer and get professional legal advice and actually, actually try to play the legal technicalities. The other aspect of this is that um, the courts have actually been given more substantive control to, or some more substantive powers to kind of like play a check against local people's governments. So the most important thing is the government's dramatically expanded since around 2015, the jurisdiction of the courts over administrative actions by parallel levels of government. And the most important thing that they've explicitly given the courts is the ability to review land takings by local governments. Now, land takings, as we all know, are pretty much the, the purse strings yeah. of local governments, right? Like it's it's made, it's most of their income, or at least it used to be most of their income. Probably still is. It and still is. Yeah. It still is, right? So so by giving courts the ability to review land takings actions, you're you're really giving courts the ability to check a very, very substantial portion of the fiscal power of local governments. And the end result of all this is, you know, the number of administrative litigation cases against governmental land takings has exploded from very low levels previously to now, like over the, in the span of five years between 2014 and 2019, it doubled the overall number of administrative litigation cases in China, just on almost just on that, on the basis of that one kind of case alone. And the one rates for that kind of case for that kind of case have, have actually also have also gone up. Right? Like you're more likely to win now than you used to be. It used right. to be you probably won like 10, 12 percent of the time. Now you're winning something like twenty something percent of the time. And while you still lose more than you win on average, I mean that increase is not small. It means the no. courts are feeling somewhat emboldened to go against the interests of parallel governments. They're actually acting as a certain kind of political check. 
uh, on their power. So to me, this is all the glass half full kind of thing. Like it's, there's a real progress. Um, there's been real good progress on the ground in the Chinese court arena. And I would expect that to continue uh, after COVID. Now, of course, if you take the glass half empty report, you can always point to various imperfections, you know, places where higher governmental authorities can still order the courts to pursue a certain kind of action and so on and so forth. But uh, but the thing is, you know, like those things have always been there, right? So they're not right. a symptom of things getting worse. They're just a, a symptom of some things not changing much in the direction that some people would prefer. Uh, but overall, like you know, the overall status of the courts is getting higher. Their overall performance is getting more professionalized. So I'm really inclined on this point to take the glass half full kind of view. Well, great. I want to move on and talk about your other paper, but let me just remind everybody that this uh, this one is called. Xi's Law and Order Strategy, the CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy. It's a very brief essay in foreign affairs, and it was published in February. So definitely check that out. I should add one thing, which is, the as is often the case with these magazines, the, the, the title is not... Yeah, fun. yeah. I, I, I was going to... Yeah, I'm sure... Yeah, the Dan title is my editors, and I think it may have actually gotten me into a bit of trouble in China, because the name Xi Jinping was in the title, which got him picked up by various kinds of... Uh, Administrators who were fretting about whether it was like like whether the the use of the name meant a certain kind of content. I think once they once if they ever read the actual piece, they'll note that this is a relatively neutral piece. Sure, sure. Yeah. Before I go on to, uh, and ask you about the other thing, I mean, I I've also been thinking about the foundations of of political legitimacy in China, and and I've been thinking about how they there might have been a shift. And I always enjoy my interactions with you because you are able to kind of step back and look at the kind of meta-historical questions. So there was this notion that I've, I've had that, you know, for, look, for the last 180 years, the question that's really been at the center of Chinese political and intellectual life has been, you know, how do we attain wealth and power in a way that's consonant with our national identity or something like that. And so it doesn't surprise yeah. me at all that that delivering those goods, you know, wealth, power, basic, you know, national dignity, those would be the foundations of legitimacy. That was the national quest. That was the foundational quest and the central uh-huh. question for what, you know, we've called modern Chinese history. And so, you know, with those things, if not actually attained, then at least in sight, there is a new question that's really looming up and maybe a new set of questions. And and with those, perhaps a need for new foundations for political legitimacy, right? For yeah. postmodern Chinese history. So this has been sort of the idea I've been playing with. Um, I mean, I suspect that with the basic material needs met and sovereignty asserted and all that stuff, the party state really does kind of need to redefine its relationship with the people and, and vice versa, right? I yeah, I I I think so. I mean, it doesn't need to in the sense that like. The people don't want more economic growth. People do. It's just going to get harder right, no, and harder do. to actually deliver. Um, but it's no longer just a developmental state, right? A, a developmental yeah, state can can kind of, I mean, it can operate on the fuel of performance legitimacy, and that almost alone, right? Yeah. yeah. But but now, I mean, that's that's not the case for a state that is now settled in among peers as sort of an established nation state, right? Yeah. I, I yeah. I I I completely agree on that. I mean, I think. The core thing here is that again, it's mainly that they they're 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 running a little bit, not not quite fully yet. Like they still have more room to grow, but like they can start to see the ends the end game where at some point they're they're gonna get closer and closer to these developed countries, and then they they're gonna recognize that as these developed countries all all have had to deal with in the past 
however many years, you know, growth is not going to be the main theme of the society anymore. It's just because of obvious material constraints and also because of uh, population pressures that every single developed economy has faced. So yeah, they're, they're going to have to change the narrative somehow. They're going to have, I mean, once growth slows down and you're not growing the pie all the time, you know, all kinds of pressures from inequality to quality of life to kind of like more bourgeois concerns with values and views are going to get more salient because, you know, growth- I think we can, already are. I think we're already seeing that reflected in a lot of the rhetoric of common prosperity and-, and Yes, exactly. Like it's already yeah. very much there. Yeah. Quality common, of growth is a very, yes. very huge theme. Yeah, exactly. But then the question is, how do you make that kind of thing actually exactly. yeah. resonate with the, with the population? You know, like I think common, common prosperity is- potentially very powerful. Well, I'm going to have you back on to talk about, you know, somebody who always has really good thoughtful perspectives on these big meta-historical questions. I don't want to get too far away from what we're talking about here, but I'll get you back on and we'll talk about all this stuff after we've had right. both had a chance to kind of chew on it and think about it. Uh, for now, though, let's let's look at the other paper, the one that you've sure. written with Yutian An, uh, who is a PhD candidate in politics at Princeton, um, who also has a law degree from Yale. That paper, again, is called Pandemic State Building, Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era. So first off, um, at what stage is this paper and, and where can people well, find it? It's a working, it's a working paper. Mm -hmm, right? So, mm -hmm, so we mm -hmm. just, we, we threw it together over two months in the winter and uh, data collection took a little bit longer, but you know, like the writing took like a month and a half. Um, so it's just in a working, working paper format. We're starting to send shielders out to public, possible publication venues, but it, you know, it'll, it'll take some time. For now, you can find it on SSRN. Uh, if you mm -hmm. just go on SSRN and search either for the title of the paper or my name or Yutian's name, you can find the paper under our profiles. So it, yeah, it's rough. It has lots of room for revision, and you know, any kind of comments or questions from anyone is welcome at this stage. Oh, great! Hopefully, yeah. some of my questions will spark some thinking. But uh, I think it's a really ambitious paper. It, it definitely tries to fill what I mean, as you point out, is a pretty big hole in the in the academic literature, whether in Chinese or in English. And I think it's totally understandable that you know this is a very recent phenomenon. You know, this expansion of controls during the pandemic. Yeah. So. Of course, it hasn't been studied that much, but there's also evidently not been a whole lot written about local administration at the sub-district and community or, or neighborhood level and, and the debates over the proper role of this lowest level during the recent years, you know, during Xi Jinping's years in power. So I found it really fascinating. Let's dive into this, this paper. So yeah. you describe the situation in which even just a year before the outbreak of the pandemic, China's leadership was still quite divided over whether and to what extent the power of the government should reach down into the local level, to down to sub-districts and to neighborhoods. Yes. And there were you know, debates that went on through, uh, throughout the first seven years of the Xi administration. But as anyone who either lived through the lockdowns of, in Shanghai uh, uh, and many, many other Chinese cities can attest, some kind of a decision favoring expansion of local government was clearly made. Yeah, it was and, clearly made, yeah. Yeah, so we're going to focus our discussion about the paper on the the logic behind that decision, uh, its 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 implementation, and its consequences. So first, I want to ask you about this. 
What were things like before this expansion? What were the powers of sub-district governments and of neighborhood committees? You know, this, we're talking about jiedao or, or streets or, or right, right. communities. Yeah, or yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, how were they funded? How were they supervised? What were they mainly tasked with doing? And maybe let's start with sub-districts. Right, right. So there, I think, really are three phases to this, to, to this entire story. One is pre-2012. Um, and then as there's 2012 to, to 2019, where you know, like, I think yeah, like as you say, there was a certain amount of uncertainty as to whether the government was going to take the plunge and how deeply was it going to take the plunge. And then post 2019, where post 2020, where everything was obviously forced, and the government just took the plunge to almost the deepest deepest extent possible right away. Yeah. Um, so prior to 2012, or to perhaps. Some people would date it a little bit earlier, but around 2011 to 2012, there was a wave of governmental interest in thinking, what exactly should we do with sub-districts? Now, sub-districts, up until this past year, frankly, even now, they're not necessarily a legally mandated universal level of government. They're, in a sense, seen as a delegation or like agency of district governments that are below district governments. And so essentially, district governments have a certain kind of like discretion as to whether to delegate power to sub-districts. Yeah, that, that was something that was really surprising to me in your, in your paper. I, I, there's yeah. no formal definition of what their administrative role was. And there, there's like 9,000 of them uh, yes. across China. It's just nuts. Uh, they, were, they were created and, I guess, directed as needed by, by you know, sort of on an odd ad hoc basis, right, by cities. Yes. And district governments. Yeah, they were basically, you know, like when districts get too large for their own traditional methods of control and administration, they create these new subdivisions to monitor at closer distance a certain patch of the district. Okay. Um, so, like the place right of in Beijing, Haidan district, created a number of these in, in between the 1990s and, two, and, and 2010s. And the district that, uh, that, my, that PKU, Peking University Falls Center, which is where my family lives, has been subject to like a pretty consistent, well, was subject to a pretty consistent like redistricting and redrawing of boundaries uh, during the early 2000s. Um, so these things lacked definitive shape. They didn't have much of like a statutory mandate as to how and to what extent they should behave and do what. Um, so, so which meant that they were always kind of awkward, right? Like, hmm. Yeah, you know, they they varied from place to place depending on, on what their powers and functions would be, um, and you know, like not everyone at the at the district level was necessarily happy with the way they function, and so there was always a, a large amount of debate over whether these things should actually even exist at all, what they, if they do exist, what they actually should be should be doing. If you, if you look at the debates around two thousand ten. The, the surprising thing is one of the papers that I read, which is really, really quite striking, like the guy was summarizing the, the literature on sub-districts and the kind of like urban management literature. And it's like, actually, it now seems that the the more popular view is that we should just get rid of some of this, like get rid of these things huh. altogether and reconcentrate formal power at the district level and just formalize that. So that was kind of like a state of the field around 2010 to 2012. There was quite a bit of uncertainty permeating from the within the bureaucracy to outside of the bureaucracy over what to do with these things. And then around 2012, you know, once the new regime takes over, there's clearly a signal sent that we want to make these sub-districts uh, more functional. We want to give them more powers, more authority. We want to make them more like, you know, formalized. 
and permanence and how they function. Um, so there are discussions about you know like subdistricts provide kinds of various kinds of services to local communities. We should beef that service provision out aspect up. Um, and then alternatively, the more controversial thing is well, what about the coercive side of government power, which is the law enforcement side, the administrative right. law enforcement side of things. And starting with 2012, there are various documents expressing a political inclination to have city and district level governments delegate more powers, uh, more law enforcement powers to the subdistrict. Um, so previously, you know, like the, the 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 way the role that subdistricts played in the overall law enforcement apparatus was mainly that they were kind of like an informational agency. They 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 kept an eye out for trouble on the ground. Right. And they sent signals back up to the center or higher levels of government asking for law enforcement personnel to come down and deal with issues. They didn't necessarily have any independent agency of their own that actually exercised. And when they did, when they did try their hand at it, it was not exactly popular. I mean, listeners who might not have lived in Chinese cities maybe don't know all about this, but you know, there are these... Chengguan, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Who are, are just loathed and despised almost uniformly. <laughs> yeah. Although, so, so there, there's a te- technical difference to be drawn, which is, you know, Chengguan is a kind of like a top-down agency that's basically created at the city level and then imposed all the way down. Okay. So the Chengguan that were operating at the sub-districts prior to around 2014 right, right. were really, they took their orders from officials at the district level, not from the sub-district governments per se. Right, so they operated at the subdistrict level, but they they were really on part orders of a, from the yeah district, they, right. they were part of a command chain that that really had everything held at the district district level or above. So okay, the, so the, let me let me just cut you off here for a second. You know, so your contention is that the center, even prior to the outbreak of COVID, COVID was was set on expanding administratively in this downward direction. It yeah, wanted was, to, the, yeah, was at least seriously considering expanding. Okay. So, it had, so it had, yeah. Let me let me put the counterfactual. Though. So, if there hadn't been a pandemic, would we still be looking today at significant downward expansion of administrative capacity? Probably not. Right. Oh, that, that, okay. That, so, so COVID did matter. Okay. Yeah, COVID. The, the, the thesis of the paper, and this is perhaps a point of disagreement with some other people who study this, like some of my friends who study urban, like like uh, local government law in China, would would actually want to say that the commitment to expanding had been made before before COVID. And I would say perhaps at some abstract level that's correct, where the central decision to pursue expansion down to the subdistrict level in terms of law enforcement was probably made before the pandemic. But in terms of actual implementation, the hesitation pre-2019 is just obvious. Yeah. Right? Like there wasn't that much that changed on the ground in most major cities prior to 2019. There were experimental launches here and there. Usually they were rolled back after a while. Like a lot of this is simply because district level governments are not that eager to to, to delegate their own powers to to to, to, to these subordinate entities. They they don't want to like dilute their own power, right? Right, right, right. So right, right. so you know, like for for example, like Beijing is perhaps the most obvious example. Like Beijing experimented with this delegate delegating effort starting from 2017 in Chaoyang district. As far as anyone could tell, it didn't have a ton of impact. And then around 2019, they just like rolled up and said, like rolled up shop and declared victory by implementing this uh, new system, which they called the, the whistleblowing system. Right, that, right, right. That they said would actually realize the goals of the central government's directive. 
But if you look at how this, the whistleblowing system actually functioned, it still was. Subdistricts would whistleblow whenever there, whatever there was trouble, and then district level law enforcement entities would send their personnel down to the subdistrict level to actually deal with the issues. So it was not actually functioning different from what was going on before. So clearly there was hesitation and pushback at some level, perhaps at the city and district levels against this uh, new initiative. And implementation was slow hesitance. The central government didn't seem interested in enforcing things. It was you know, like Beijing's, frankly, pretty half-assed experiment met with quite effusive praise from mm-hmm. the censure, saying that this is actually quite a good experiment. Others should follow, the, should follow, should follow its example. So clearly, the, the, the overall attitude was just kind of fuzzy. And even if there had been some kind of general mood towards expansion, it didn't have concrete shape, nor did it have any kind of concrete implementation in a widespread manner. You have COVID and everything changes. Within a year of COVID hitting, by like the spring and summer of 2021, delegation is just like all over the place. Every major city begins delegating huge amounts of actual law enforcement powers down to the subdistrict level, they create these gigantic, huge charts of what powers are actually being delegated down to the ZL level. And the charts are just quite something to look at. Like out of a total count of like 400 something uh, total items of law enforcement authority held previously by the district, something like 270 were being sent down, uh, like a full two thirds were being sent down to the subdistricts. So things moved really fast and really concretely post-COVID, whereas they certainly had not been doing so pre-COVID. Right. I mean, in hindsight now, I mean, because we've, of course, seen the experiment of COVID, uh, it's hard to imagine that there could have ever been any debate uh, whether it was really in doubt that the party state wanted to exert control all the way down. So, um, you know, we, we've t- you talk about some of the misgivings, you know, what were some of the reasons why people were hesitant uh, principal agent problem is one of the right, the, the, right. The so problems. yeah, the principal agent problem is the thing that everyone talks about. Like whatever, whatever, whatever anyone talks about looking for problems, everyone always talks about principal agent problems. We're no exception to that because it really is the main thing. I mean, the basic logic of this is that the larger the state, the more expansive it gets, the more deeper it penetrates the society. The harder it is for a policymaker at the center to actually control the actions of your local agents. They're right. more distant from you. They're going to be operating out of your media line of sight. You have to set up various kinds of monitoring institutions to know what's going on down there. And the thing is, that kind of thing is not just a matter of you not having full control. If they mess up, it comes back to you in terms of social anger, anxiety, unrest, and so on and so forth. So until you have full trust over local agents, you're not always that eager to give them powers, right? Like giving them powers might make you more equipped to control society, but it also makes you a little bit like less well-equipped to actually deal with control within your own governmental bureaucracy. Well, Tyson, uh, you talk about how there needed to be a lot of groundwork laid for this kind of an administrative expansion and, yes. you know, because of this concern about oversight, a concern that there would be bad actors among local government officials. Millions of them, though, were censured, millions were prosecuted in the course of the anti-corruption drive. How yes. important was the anti-corruption drive in setting the stage for being able to then downward delegate like this? Right. Okay, that's a great question. Like, the, the, that, to me, I think is one of the lynches of this entire thing. Right? Without the overall legality push that C has made over the past decade, I don't think that this kind of expansion of governmental authority really could have been implemented. 
See, and that's where this dovetails with what your your paper was. Yes, I mean, this paper, why this paper connects directly with what you wrote about in foreign affairs. Exactly. So, like, like there, there's a certain kind of eternal design to my work that manifests itself pretty much everywhere. I, 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 I poke my head. So, yeah, exactly. Like, there's a certain kind of functional reliance of governmental expansion on your ability to make sure that local bureaucrats are following the rules. And you make sure that local bureaucrats are following the rules by making things more legalistic within the bureaucracy, creating more clear rules, creating an expectation that they're going to follow the rules, um, giving other agencies and courts the, the ability to kind of monitor them and make sure that they're actually following the rules. Now, the downside of all this is that this may, in some ways, uh, reduce corruption and abuse of power at the local level, but it's also really costly. Yeah. Because right? You, you, what, what this means is, is that every expansion of local governmental authority at the sub-district or, or neighborhood organization level is really a double investment of cost. The first cost is just you have to create new agencies and hire your bureaucrats and train them and you, you know like give them powers and so on and so forth. The second cost is you have, then you have to create a separate layer of monitoring that allows you to to know what these guys are actually doing and allow you to actually exert some kind of top-down control over them. So overall, that kind of bureaucratic infrastructure is very expensive to build. So you can imagine, you know, China right now is not exactly in very happy fiscal circumstances. So this kind of thing has put substantial burdens on the state. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So one more question before we get into the actual changes that took place during the pandemic. So. Yeah. Have there been changes in the way that leaders of these local level organizations are chosen? And and when did those changes take place? Because I know that when I lived in China, you know, there was a rough and very clearly imperfect form of democracy where pretty much anyone technically could stand for election. Yes. There were even, you know, foreign residents that stood for election in their neighborhood communities. Yes. Uh, how democratic in practice did that ever get and right, how things right, changed right. as far as you know? Right. right. So, so to answer that, we have to actually come kind of just draw the distinction between sub-districts and neighborhood Yeah, yeah, we didn't actually get to neighborhood committees. And yeah, I, we I figured we, we could talk about them quite a bit during, you know, the, the post-COVID or the pandemic era. Right. Thing. But yeah, but yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, so, so make that the, distinction. The, right, the distinction is, you know, sub-districts are still governmental entities. They're full-blown governmental entities. Even if they're not, they weren't officially recognized until the organization law and yeah, even if they had this nebulous legal status, they're still you know, delegation agencies basically sent out by the by the districts and they have full official official bureaucratic rank and so on and so forth. Um so the, so you know like leaders of sub districts were always chosen in the usual top down appointed manner through the Zhujibu and so on and so forth. Neighborhood organizations prior to two thousand twelve and even today, nominally speaking, they are self governance entities of urban communities. Right, they're meant to be a way for ur- urban neighborhoods to govern themselves, which right. meant that. So, so this is the urban parallel to villages in the rural setting. Village officials are supposed to represent the interests of their village constituents, and so they're elected. And so, hence, by the same logic, uh, neighborhood organization chiefs. You know, every every most urban neighborhoods in China have one of these things. Actually, almost every single one has one of these things. There's a neighborhood organization that, frankly, prior to like 2015, I didn't even know where my neighborhood organization actually was. I just never dealt with it. They were invisible completely. But there is a, there was always a neighborhood organization chair 
and the chair was elected. Or as you say, any local resident had the ability to stand for election. There were pretty weak and vague, like vague criteria on who could actually be elected. And it was, while not fully democratic in process, it was pretty like grassroots oriented. It was pretty organic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There were always some directives, even in the pre-2012 era, that you know, like the party had to maintain a certain semblance of political standards, right? Like you couldn't elect a someone who was openly hostile to the party state to to, to, to that kind of position. Although something even that apparently happened periodically when things got out of control. Yeah. But the idea was that there there would be some monitoring, but the mature, the monitoring would come with a pretty light touch. Post two thousand twelve, and especially post two thousand and twenty, there have been distinctive moves towards imposing some be- like a pretty robust measure of top down vetting over hmm. who can actually stand for election. And I think by now, like post pandemic, given that these neighborhood organizations are now essentially just like you know they still have a veneer of self governing self-governance, but functionally speaking, they're really just extensions of the, the administrative states, right, at, the, at this point. Right, right. Um, you know, like, who actually leads them is a matter of great significance uh, to urban governance. So, so at this point, certainly, they're not going to let any random Joe from the neighborhood stand for election and run the risk that this guy actually gets elected. So now, they're pretty much, you know, like, as far as I can tell, a higher authorities send down a list, perhaps with some, con- like, with consultation from with consultation with local neighborhoods, peop- like people or organizations, they draw up a list of approved candidates. Yeah, yeah. and send them down for election. Um, I'm not surprised. <laughs> yeah, so you have choice. Like sometimes you have some real choice. What is a choice between party approved candidates? Yeah. So let's get into the actual changes in local governance after the outbreak of COVID in in you know February of 2020. Yeah, I think a lot of us have kind of a short memory, and we forget that there was actually a lot of praise that was directed at China's display of competent state capacity in the spring yes. of 2020. Yeah. Exactly. We actually exactly. forget that you know China faced the yeah. same situation that much of the rest of the world did, this really fast-spreading virus. It was in every province, as you point out. But whatever may have happened later, at least in the early months, China's containment of the disease was remarkable, and it was you know a, a manifestation of this administrative expansion that you guys talk about. So, uh, you know, it, it seemed to, you know, to be an early victory. Uh, let's, can we talk about the importance of some things like the health code system that China implemented? How, how critical was that to the success? I mean, that was the linchpin eventually of the entire system. Certainly by 2022, that was the core thing that made this entire thing run. Um, I would say, like, I, I completely agree. Like, even today, I'm not entirely sure we shouldn't see Chinese uh, pandemic control as at least a some kind of perhaps now weakened, but still, it's a it's a success story compared to some other co- comparison sets, right? Like, it's um, it's not quite the the overwhelming success story that seemed to be in 2021, but it's still, you know, like on a per capita basis. Even by the more hostile estimates, China probably has suffered a quarter of the deaths that the U.S. has, and so on and so forth. So, you know, the legacy of this entire thing is complicated. But the thing that made the entire thing run, initially, it was basically, without the health code, they had to do it more of a brute force. So they set right. checkpoints, they checked your documents, they looked at your tickets, figured out where you were, and then just you know track everything to your personal government identification number. 
And that was a slow and uh, often bulky process. Starting from 2021, they designed various kinds of health codes. And this, these are things that are, these are apps. These are mini apps that are usually tied to the WeChat app, WeChat app on your phone if you're in China. And everyone in China has a WeChat, right? Yeah. yeah it's basically your entire life. What the mini app inside the WeChat app would give you is that you tie this to your personal information, your, your ID number, your facial recognition data, and then it links you to a health code. Now, the code is basically like a Q code that you scan wherever you go, right? Mm-hmm. And it comes with a couple of colors. You know, green means normal, yellow means that you've been exposed, red means you've been highly exposed. Usually, anything that's yellow or red means that your movement is restricted. Because it has your geolocation data. Exactly. Right. And so the way that they would use this is, is that everywhere you went, into every building, uh, pretty much you know, every taxi you took, the subway, the bus, you always had to scan your, your, your health code first. So that the government pretty much always knew where exactly you were unless you were just wandering around the street. Um, and so any indoors thing, you would have to scan your, your health code. So which meant that once there was any kind of ringing outbreak, a couple of people here and there, they would know almost exactly who was in that locality at a certain time of day. And so they could track you to within like an hour and a block of pretty much any any activity of yours. And so then they would, you know, depending on who you had been exposed to, how you had been exposed, issue various orders for various kinds of either testing or quarantine. So yellow health code usually meant that you have to do a couple of tests every day for a couple of days. Uh, red health code usually meant that you had to stay at your home for a couple of days and somebody would come and check on you every single day. So the health code was essentially kind of like a marker on you that allowed the government to basically track you in time and space. So now right. always know exactly where you were, pretty much. I can't even imagine how Americans re- would react to the imposition of such a system. Well, I mean, so the, 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 there's there's kind of like a f- an anecdote that I have to tell about this, which is around 2020, in April 2020, a couple of my colleagues here at the law school were working with the New Haven City government to implement some kind of smartphone-based location tracking for individuals. They were about contact tracing in a, in a less intrusive manner. You could just kind of install, everyone would install kind of like a New Haven tracking app on their phone, and the app would tell the government more or less where you were and allow the government to, to, to ask you to test or quarantine on a more targeted basis. Um, now, you can guess the reaction this actually got in New Haven. And <laughs> yeah. New Haven is a relatively, you know, New Haven is a very liberal place and we're, we're tolerate relatively larger amounts of governmental intrusion into their lives. But this was still easily enough to make everyone hate my colleagues um, for, this, for, <laughs> for helping with this. And the government got huge amounts of pushback on this. And by June of 2020, the entire idea was just scrapped. So yeah, yeah it did. Yeah. It's not something that would work in the U.S. So, so Taisu, for ordinary people living in China, the most visible evidence of this administrative expansion, besides the app on their phone, was yeah. the ubiquity of the Dabais, these people oh, in yeah. full-body PPE who <laughs> seemed to be just you know absolutely everywhere. Where did they all come from? Who was putting on the suits? Who did they work directly for? Right. So that that's complicated because people put on suits for all kinds of different reasons. There is the medical worker, who usually often is, at least in my experience, back from being, being in Beijing for a couple months that summer, those people are actually you know, personnel taken away from local hospitals and asked to do testing in this part of the district on this day or that day. Then there are various kinds of security personnel. Then there are you know, neighborhood organization personnel. 
that maintain order at the testing sites and so on and so forth. And they all they also dress in these big white puffy suits. So Daba was you know, it's not just the health workers. It's also right, right. administrators, law enforcement personnel, police. Um one of the interesting things is by the end of 2022, but by the end of zero COVID, a lot of these neighborhood organizations had created their own kind of like law enforcement teams. Um, yeah, I was going to ask about that. I mean, because, you know, look, 2022, you've got the Omicron variant beginning to spread all over China. Uh, you start to need more coercive tools, right? Yeah. Uh, so where did the Jiuhui go when it needed enforcement muscle? I mean, did it, was it able to tap Chengguan or did it well, I mean, yes, yes. Um, it tapped Chengguo, it tapped the police. You know, in Shanghai, for example, in 2021, the city government created a system where every single neighborhood organization would have essentially kind of like a police mini station assigned to it. Uh, but they would also have to, because that was not enough manpower, so they would also have to recruit volunteers. And these would usually be, you know, like the, the, the security guards uh, for buildings, the various kinds of balan. Or in other words, just simply volunteers that had a certain kind of social connection to neighborhood organizations. So it was lots of recruitment from across society. Now that I think is not permanent. Uh, I think that was kind of like a pandemic everything. Then most of these guys have now gone back to their usual jobs if they're still there. So it was a mixture of more permanent actual law, like law enforcement staff like the Chengguan or the police paired with a perhaps even larger number of just like informal volunteers. Well, this this depends on which city you're talking about and which area of the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, last set of questions have to do with technology for you. Yeah. I mean, we already talked about the importance of the QR codes and everything like that, but what I, I want to understand is what role technology plays in the new post-pandemic yeah. power structure. I mean, because, right. you know, on the one hand... I can see an argument that sub-district and neighborhood organizations are going to be able to use technologies, everything from, you know, like these QR codes to biometrics and surveillance cameras yeah, yeah. Uh, to do more with less in terms of the manpower they have. I mean, they will be able to fill in the gaps that they have of, of capacity, right? But yes. on the other hand, you could also argue that with this technology at their disposal, the already powerful tiers above these organizations, the city level, they would be able to exert control over much larger populations without the, you know, the the, the lower layers, like the, the Jiedao and the Shichu. Um, what do you think? Yeah. Where do you come down on this? Well, so I come down on the side of, well, some things are not permanent. You know, like the, the, the health codes are not permanent, right? Like right now, I think no one scans codes going to places in China anymore. Um, I think the government wisely decided that, like, that, that became such a symbol of the control. That once social integrate reached a certain kind of breaking point, you at least you have to retreat on certain kinds of like really salient aspects of control. Uh, that said, right, like the expansion of authority of control over neighborhood organizations, the use of neighborhood organizations as administrative entities, uh, the delegation of law enforcement powers, the subdistricts, I'd say that's all there to say. And that's there to say because. I mean, yeah, the technologies give you a certain amount of monetary capacity at the district level, but in terms of the day-to-day -day actual control, like fast reaction, mm -hmm. right? The the ability to process the data you collect in real time and know what to make of it—that's still pretty localized, right? Like, 
you know, a district in China is often like a million people or more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you They're centralize big. all the data there, the human processing of the data, the identification of who is who and what to do with who, how to assess any person's risk level. I mean, you, you, we, we often think of like AI as possible too. AI is not there. It's so human for the most part. And because of that, right, given that you need local knowledge, you know, who is the troublemaker in this locality and so on and so forth, you're, you still need the local manpower that some districts and, local, and neighborhood organizations provide to you. That's not going to change. And right. I would also say that because of their experience with the social unhappiness in November and December, they're aware that like lockdowns made a pretty large portion of the urban population pretty unhappy. And so given that level of like more, you know, like that ten, that kind of tenser social environment that they're now operating in, I don't think they're going to feel free to loosen real ability to control at the local level anytime soon. Right, like right. The, I remember in the first week of December, right after you know they dropped zero COVID, uh, there were a lot of people who were saying, "Hey, look, they actually are willing to give up social controls. Like they're, they're, they dismantled this health code system so quickly." But you guys argue that it's actually not just larger and more comprehensive and tighter, but it's actually here to stay. It's permanent, right? Yeah, well, I mean, they they are willing to dismantle certain kinds of social controls. Like right, right. That's for, so. Yeah, so you can dismantle pandemic level movement controls without getting rid of your like administrative infrastructure at the local level that gives you the fast response power. You had a nice phrase that said, I think it's a, let me me, find this line. Right. COVID prevention measures could not last forever, not even in China, but the expansion of local governmental authority was made of more durable institutional material. That's 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 about right to me. <laughs> pretty yeah. durable institutional material, yeah. It yeah. is pretty durable because it, it's also it has to be because they're dealing with a less happy population now. Like it'll take a couple of years for the population to recover um, to its former level of happiness and trust or whatever. And, and, and the government. Don't worry, so, don't worry, because there's legality now. It's uh, the law. Oh, there's <laughs> yeah, but I, I don't, don't, in my defense, I also say that legality probably can't plug the entire whole left by no, slowing no, economic growth. No. Right, so. I was just give, giving you a hard time. <laughs> no, no, but but it's, it's a fair it's, it's it's a fair question. I mean, like given the fact that state society relations are probably a bit more tense right now than they were just like two years ago, especially at this point, you probably in their minds they probably can least afford to fully withdraw from a presence on the ground, right? Like you don't you don't like loosen the floodgates right at the moment where you see the flood rising, right? Very good. Taisu, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your really fascinating work. Um, I want to move on to recommendations, uh, but first, first let's uh, remind our listeners that if you like the work that we do with the Seneca Podcast and you want to help out, a couple of ways to do that, but the, the most important, I mean, you can obviously, we have this uh, crowdfunding thing going on right now still where we are taking investors and for you know, a relatively small amount, you can buy a piece of the company and, you know, you can find all the information about that on our website. But uh, you you can also just become an access member. That really helps us out quite a bit. Uh, you know, you get the great newsletter, you get access to all, you know, unlimited uh, articles on the website. And of course, you get the Sitica podcast delivered early on Monday rather than having to wait until Thursday. So if you want to help us out, that's the best way to, to do it. We're still running this special, a dollar for your first month. Okay, let's move on to recommendations. <laughs> Taisu, what do you have for us? Well, okay, so uh, 
admittedly, I'm a nerd who doesn't really have much of a life. Uh, you know this about <laughs> me. And so my recommendations come mainly in the range of like books to read. Um, That's good. I like books. Things like things of this nature. So it depends on what your tastes are. Like, apologies for, for moving away from that for a second. Like the, the camera is going to freeze, but I'm just, um, just pulling up this list that I drew up. So it depends on what you guys want. Like if you want, you know, like reading reading material for either your philosophy or politics or so on and so forth. Uh, there's lots out there to recommend these days. Like what I'm reading right now is, um, for example, like I'm, I'm reading quite a bit of the late David Graeber. I don't know. If, yeah, yeah, you, yeah. I sure. Yeah, David Graeber, of course. Yeah, various books of his, I and mean, like the more popular ones are the, the one that he published last year. Right, just about, before like, he died. Just before he died, but like I, I challenging I, I, all uh, these ideas that early, you know, human art anthropologists had about uh, civilization's emergence. Yeah, that that was interesting. Yeah, and I I find that book good, but it's not so terribly interesting to me. So, like, what's your but, favorite David Graeber book? Good. I like the Utopia of Rules a little bit. Mm. Um, so you know, it's it's a it's a pretty incisive creative way to look at you know, frankly given the topic that we're on um, bureaucracies and technological bureaucracies and how bureaucracies function using various kinds of technologies and of course you know given graver he can't resist making fun of these kinds of things the title is actually called the utopia of rules on technology stupidity and the secret joys of bureaucracy uh, <laughs> sounds quite appropriate i think given the topic um uh, in terms of China-related re- uh, reading, I don't know how much of a taste for like history books you guys have. I've got uh, lots, yeah. <laughs> so some of my like there, there's a trio of history books that have recently come out on Chinese state building uh, that actually speak pretty well to each other, and I would recommend two of those. The third I, I offered myself, so I, I will leave that to the side. Uh, but the two books that I would recommend if you're interested in reading about the history of the Chinese state. And its relationship to the Chinese population is one is uh, Yu Hua Wang's book. Yu Hua is a professor of political science. Yeah, he's great. He's great at Harvard. Um, whose most recent book is the is the uh, rise and fall of imperial China. Yes, it's, it's a possibly broad topic, but it's really about the uh, changing the shift the, sh- the shifting power balance between state and society in the most recent one thousand years of the Chinese bureaucratic state. Uh, the other one is Mara Dykstra's recent book. Mara is a currently still a professor at Caltech, mm-hmm. teaching history, but she's moving to Yale in the fall. I think full blown to start here uh, in the history department. She is our new kind of China historian, so she has a new book. It's called Uncertainty and the Empire of Routine, which is about basically exactly given that we're talking about principal agent problems. In the urban 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 Chinese governance context, this book is about basically the construction of internal monitor, like internal monitoring, and internal bureaucratic control apparatuses in the mid to late teen. And I think it's a fantastic book. Now, uh, I have a book that came out recently myself. Kaiser mentioned this: the the ideological foundations of state taxation, which is in conversation with both of these books uh, on a lot of themes about state building and state capacity. So those are some professional books that I would recommend. Now, excellent, uh, given, given that I want to seem a little bit more fun than just that, um, <laughs> well, I also have some fiction fiction recommendations for people. Okay. Um, depends on whether you read Chinese or not. If you don't read Chinese, 
I imagine by this point, almost everyone listening to your podcast probably has read The Three-Body Problem or the yeah, English sure. translation. If they haven't, I'd still recommend that as like the best piece of fiction to come out of China in probably the past two decades. Uh, have you seen the, ten, the Tencent uh, uh, television show based on I it have. I, I, I would recommend that too. I think yeah, that it's is good. I think that, that is an excellent like, recreation of the first book. It's a, it gets a little bit slow in the later episodes. It's but very still, slow, yeah. Yeah, but it's still quite like it's deep. It's it ca- faithful. It's re- reasonably faithful. Yeah. yeah, and it also captures the intellectual weight of the entire thing, right? Yeah. Like it actually yeah. gets that that kind of intellectual seriousness. Um, beyond that, for those who only read Chinese, um, there is a set of books called the Jiangnan Sanbuqi, so the Lower mm-hmm. Yangtze Trilogy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a Chinese uh, novel written by this guy, by this novelist called Guofei. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's three has three parts. Um, respectively, as the should. Yeah, yeah. and Jiangnan. Uh, this is honored with the 2015 Modern Prize, which is the highest prize for Chinese fiction. Uh, and it's about kind of like the history of a family of a, of a group of individuals um, from pretty much like the late 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 imperial times all the way up to the early PRC. It has wow. a certain it has a certain kind of feel that's similar to 100 Years of Solitude. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of like mysticism attached to it, the constant moving between imaginary and real worlds, the mystical attitude. In that sense, you could think it's a little bit like Moya, but I find these books they're better than what Moya has recently written in that they, they actually have a plot. Oh. Uh, they, have a, they, have a, they, they have a pretty gripping plot, and, you know, well-defined characters, and not just the atmosphere and language that Moya manages to create. So... I'd recommend that for anyone who cares about reading kind of like a set of historical novels about China that particularly cap- captures really well. So, uh, the Jiang Nan San Bu Chu by Gefei. Okay. Yes. Fantastic. Yeah. Great recommendations. All right. Uh, let me just throw a couple of mine in really quickly. One is that I am right now reading Assignment China, an oral history of American journalists in the People's Republic. Uh, which is by Mike Chinoy, who is a very well-known correspondent for CNN, now based in Hong Kong. And Jeremy and I will be interviewing him for this show about the book. So uh, it's part of the reason I'm reading it. I would read it anyway because it's it's fascinating. It's just put together uh, basically chronological major events that touch on U.S.-China relations and some just on you know domestic Chinese politics. And it's just uh, you know a couple of paragraphs from all the different journalists who reported it, their reminiscences about reporting that story. Uh, and it's it's fascinating. It's really, really interesting to, to re- read how it's remembered and, and, and uh, what people's impressions were as they you know, were on the ground, notebooks in hand, reporting these events. Uh, so I, I recommend it. And it'd be great if you guys could get a hold of it and read it before you listen to the interview because I'm sure you'll get a lot more out of it when you hear uh, so that's my main recommendation. The other is, uh, this is just sort of really off the wall. I bought myself a pound of beeswax not too long ago uh, because I wanted to make some, I wanted to make some uh, some bow wax, you know, out of natural materials for bowstrings. Uh-huh. And I f- suddenly started, you know, beeswax. It's this lovely substance. It smells really nice. And I, I thought, you know, there's all sorts of other uses for it, right? So. Um, I just went down this rabbit hole of making various things from for around the house, everything from furniture polish to you know foot cream and hand lotion uh, out of 
things that, that I already had mostly, you know, around the house, you know, mineral oil or turpentine or, or, uh, you know, olive oil or avocado oil or almond oil, um, you know, like what, just like essential oil stuff. I've got, you know, nice soft hands now from all my lotioning, from, uh, <laughs> my, my, my own hand homemade beeswax based. Uh, okay. Yeah. So check it out. That- so. None of your well, beeswax, all of mine. All right. <laughs> I actually have a considerable amount of beeswax at home. I've never known what to do with it, but well, okay, now, now you that... know. Now you know no, what to do. If you no, have some wooden furniture that needs polishing, if you have calloused heels, I can set you up. <laughs> all right. Sounds awesome. All right, Taisu. Thank you so much. I mean, once again, let me just remind everybody what the the, the papers, uh, the the article in. Foreign Affairs is called Seize Law and Order Strategy, the CCP's Quest for a Fresh Source of Legitimacy. And the paper that uh, was written, I actually mentioned two papers. One is your one with Yiching Fu and Yiching Xu called Does Legality Produce Legitimacy? And the other, which is, is of course, the main paper that we discussed uh, during this is called Pandemic State Building, Chinese Administrative Expansion in the Xi Jinping Era. And you can get that on SSRN if you just look up Taisu Zhang or uh, his co-author, Yutian An. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you so, thank you so much, Kaiser. Pleasure. It's a real yes. pleasure talking to you. The Seneca Podcast is powered by The China Project and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo. We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at Seneca at thechinaproject.com or just give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at thechinaproj and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Take care.